What is up, People First Leaders? My name is Chris Lin, and I'm your advocate and host for the Leading People First podcast, where we are set to transform the workplace. Quick update before we jump into this episode. I have been meeting with so many amazing People First Leaders, and you all have been such an amazing support that I have to release two episodes a week. So not only will you get your usual episodes on Tuesdays, you will now get one on Thursdays as well. Again, thank you for your support. And if you know any other awesome People First Leaders who need their story told, just reach out to me and let me know. Again, thank you for downloading this episode and be sure to hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically downloaded to your device. Now let's dive into this week's episode. So I don't know about you, but when I hear the terms law or lawyer, I'm not exactly jumping for joy. However, my guest today may have changed my mind. Sajel Thacker is not your average employment law attorney. She has more than 15 years of experience advising clients, human resources, and legal counsel. When it came to sharing sound standard employment practices, Sajel uncovered a need and personal passion for bringing more proactive, relevant, and impactful workplace training to her clients and their teams. Her highly experiential workshops bring the courtroom to the training room in an interactive environment that favors human stories over compliance checklists. Sajal continues to provide legal counsel in various areas with that same passion. We chatted about how companies need to get past the minimum legal requirement to build outstanding cultures. We also bonded over how company policies need to include company values in order to reinforce behaviors, especially ones that aren't covered by law. No matter the context, her passion for helping clients understand the value of more harmonious workplaces and the path to getting there is always front and center. I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Now let's hop right in. Welcome to the Leading People First podcast, Sajal Thacker. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on your show. It's great to have you, especially in this time. Something that we all need is something that uh, a lot of organizations need is something that you offer. So that's something that's super important nowadays. Yeah, thank you so much. It it really is right now. I mean, I don't know if you've been outside or I mean, I'm in California and we've just had the the most incredibly freakish day I've ever seen in my life. Like the sky has been orange all day. Like I'm talking orange, like the moon, blood orange all day long. And so the times are really different. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing with organizations is just stuff that we're all dealing with for the first time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's a scary time. um, But again, for organizations and for companies, it's really dependent on leadership to make a difference, especially when it comes to their people and their people's experience within the organization. So what I want to start off with is what it means to you to lead people first. To me, when I hear that phrase, and I, I, you know, I think leaders, the way they are today is very different than they've been in the past. And what, what employees expect from their leaders is very different. And so to me, it's about inspiring, you know, to lead people first is to inspire your employees to be part of a solution so that, you know, you can create a plan for your organization and and really focus in on the culture. And so to me, a good leader is going to be one that's going to empower their employees to lead as well as, you know, ask them for feedback and make sure that they understand that 
what what the organization is doing cannot happen without getting the employees involved. And so to me, that's that's what, how I view that. Yeah, spot on. I mean, especially with what you do in training for unconscious bias, diversity, inclusion, cyberbullying, employment practices, it's so important for leaders to have that pulse on their teams and their individual uh, employees, and especially to inspire them to do that work so they can make a difference and make a positive difference. I think that that's something that um, we miss is that, you know, a lot of managers will say, just get it done versus how can we make it better, right? And what can we do that is the right way of working versus uh, just just working in general? Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's, it's one of those situations, and I think a lot of that is just ingrained in the way that leaders have sort of gotten to their positions. I mean, there are some leaders that get promoted up, you know, and then they're in these positions and frankly have no clue how to lead, um, but they got there because they got the work done. And then there's the leaders that actually know how to lead. Uh, and so once I think an, uh, uh, when you understand that your leaders are not just your C-level, C C-suite level that's not what we look at as just being the leaders. It's every leader within the organization, you know, and I think that you need to recognize that even like your middle management, you know, needs to know how to, how to lead their teams. And there's a lot that goes into it. It's, it's complicated to be a leader, you know, at any organization, regardless of size. And so it's, it, they have their work cut out for them, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I like, what you said earlier about empowering the teams and the employees is that we can also empower those individuals who don't necessarily have a management title or executive title to also be leaders. And that's something that's a key component of what I think you do, especially when it comes to having uncomfortable conversations, such as unconscious bias, diversity, inclusion, cyberbullying, civility and culture. Those individuals who are working among their team members and their peers, again, even though they don't have an authoritative title, they can still make a massive impact on the culture and how people interact with each other and create a better employee experience within the company. For sure. And, and I'll just add to that. I mean, this was, you know, as an attorney, when I was working on these lawsuits and, and I specialized in discrimination and harassment cases, you know, it's, you know, you can train leadership and, and again, it could be any level of leadership. You can train your managers until you're blue in the face. But if your employees, regardless of title, regardless of rank, I'm talking about just every single employee, at the organization, if they're not under, if they don't understand what the core values are, what the definition of these values are, what are their expectations within an organization, if that's not clearly communicated by leadership, right? So you first need to have the commitment, obviously, by leadership, because we know that without that, nothing really is going to work. So you need the commitment and buy-in by leadership, but then that also needs to be communicated to every single employee. And this is where I think organizations really are missing and there's gaps there. Um, and so, for example, bystander intervention training. I worked on so many cases 
representing management. And when I looked at the kind of training that they were providing to employees on how they should respond in certain situations and what they should do to get out of those tricky situations, it was non-existent in a lot of cases. I mean, it was literally to the point, all they were offering their employees was that required mandatory check the box sexual harassment training. And that was it. That's all the employees were getting. Aside from maybe they might get a video or two during onboarding. That is insufficient, right? So when I was dealing with that, I was it was really frustrating from a legal perspective because I'm sitting there seeing the organization through that legal lens. And I'm like, there is so much you could have done to mitigate the legal risk in this case and all the other cases that you have going against you. But they weren't doing that. They were only providing, you know, and I'm just using the example of bystander intervention training as just one area. I can tell you like several other areas where I noticed um, that organizations were not putting the effort in where they should have, right? So ineffective bystander intervention training is a huge one. And we all know, and, and I know you'll agree with me on this, is that waiting for the lawsuit before you do anything about it, being reactive, that doesn't work. If anything, that goes the opposite direction. Now it looks like you're just putting a band-aid on a situation rather than really going to the root cause of the issue. I, I, that resonates so strongly with me because I've actually been at an organization that was like that, where all they did was the bare minimum legal requirements. And that was actually their reason for not having a more extensive training policy or uh, having more extensive culture initiatives was because nope this is what the law says and this is what we're going to do and it's like you're actually inhibiting a lot of progress that could be made within the company and on that note talking about law i i do have a question is i mean why in your experience why have you found that a lot of these organizations that only comply with the law and not take their policies further to really boost their cultures and values why don't they do that why don't they do above the bare minimum, above what is legally required? You know, um, that is such a great question. And I'll tell you, it's, it's all about the bottom line. It really is. Because if you look at all the reasons why you should do more than what the law requires, the research is there. Is There's nothing new I can tell you that everybody doesn't already know. It's very clear that if you have diversity in your organization and they feel included, you're going to have business results. It's going to make your employees feel have better morale. It's going to increase productivity. It's going to decrease lawsuits. I mean, there are two reports by McKinsey and company that outline the business justification for diversity. So why is it that organizations are not doing that? Um, but also when you talk about the law and why isn't that they're not expanding their policies, it's not that all organizations aren't. I'm actually working with several organizations and I have worked with several organizations that have broader policies, right? But the question is, it's a majority of them that aren't. So you have the few that are, and they, and, and again, if you're looking for evidence and data, and this is what really as an attorney um, gets me all fired up because I'm like, the data's there. The data is right there. So why aren't you doing it? When you look at why the lawsuits are filed throughout the nation and the number of lawsuits and why they keep increasing and why aren't, I mean, the EEOC issued a full report that said why harassment training isn't working. And they gave you literally line, a very detailed outline of what you should do to not um, so that you don't have as many lawsuits or that you can mitigate those lawsuits point by point. And yet look around, are organizations doing that? 
Not all of them. Some of them are. And it's just, so the way that I look at it, because I've seen the financial figures, I've seen how much lawsuits cost, right? I mean, a typical, an average employment law case, and I'm, I'm citing old numbers. I'm like, when I was first got out and I, you know, this is like, I would say this number is probably about three years old. So it might be a lot more now, but an average employment law case is going to cost about 125 to 150,000. Now that was three years ago. Right. So the data is there, but yet organizations continue not to. And the only response that I can come up with is a, that they care about, you know, it's all about the bottom line. And it's that, let me take that risk because that's what you're doing is you're taking a risk. When you don't address the root cause of the problem, you are taking a gamble every single day and it takes one person to file that lawsuit and then it's done, right? Your reputation is done. Your brand damage is done. It's going to impact your morale. You know, you might have to pay it a ton of money. You might have to do training. You might have to do other things like fire people. I mean, whatever. I mean, the costs significantly outweigh not being proactive, but yet they still do that. So... <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question or not, but thank you for letting me go on about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I have, I mean, that that brings up a number of points. One is the entire reason why I started this podcast was because I was tired of companies and leaders putting money in front of people, right? They prioritize money in front of people. And that is what drove me crazy. And that's what started this whole leading people first uh, organization and podcast. So right on point on that. And then when you look at the dollars, the dollar bottom line, right, is yes, you have that risk by not implementing these more robust policies and programs, but you're also incurring, you alluded to this, a much higher cost down the line if something happens. Right. It's not just like that hundred fifty thousand. I imagine that hundred fifty thousand dollar figure is just the legal fees, right? Because then when you start looking at okay, all of a sudden you have to implement training, you have to implement uh, more policy, you have to start looking at what are the legal requirements now that you had a lawsuit on your hands uh, to implement new policies. That means more lawyers. That means mm -hmm. um, right retraining. That means rebranding. That means all of this extra PR culture stuff that will cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. I know you've cited this example before, but I, and I like this example, is the uh, Starbucks case, mm -hmm. right, in Philadelphia, where yeah. the two black gentlemen were, uh, had the police called on them for hanging out there mm -hmm. because I believe they were waiting for someone or they wanted to use the bathroom. And as a former Starbucks employee myself, as a manager, I actually am very aware of that. And that was something that was almost, it was informally promoted within the organization to like not let people use the bathroom if you think they're sketchy. And not only is that just like wrong on an entire level, but mm -hmm. you look at the cost to them, how much it costs them because they shut down all of their stores for four hours uh, on one day. And that cost them hundreds of millions of dollars where instead if they had implemented a simple learning program that really focused on an unconscious bias and integrating, uh, eliminating unconscious bias within the workplace and really bringing that customer connection, which I know they have a focus on, that could have saved them so much time, so much bad PR and so much money. And so it's something that, Again, 
if you really want to think about bottom line, think about what it will end up costing you down the line. You know, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, I mean, here, here's another data point that just goes right along with what you're saying. I mean, I quote this too a lot of times is that Sherm came out with a study that said that toxic work, work cultures, right? Not only does it damage morale, it injures productivity, it erodes bottom lines, but they said this is going to, if you haven't heard this, it's going to blow your mind that the employee turnover, right? Just the employee turnover caused by these toxic cultures costs employers more than $223 billion in the last five years. That's how much they've paid out. $223 billion for employee turnover. So there is, that's what I mean, is like there's a lot of data. And you know what? Those days are gone where you can get employees to sign these agreements and then keep the facts all quiet. I mean, in California, they've just passed a law right last year, or maybe it was a year before, where they said that, I think it went into effect last year, where they said, you know, when you're doing these sexual harassment cases, you know, you can't now prohibit somebody from talking about the facts of the case. Well, now this is this is huge because now we have the internet. And so people are going to get online and they're going to post about what the employer did, which they weren't allowed to do before. Yeah. And so the laws are getting more and more liberal and employee friendly and, and not to mention employees are fed up. You know, they're like, look, if you're not going to, if you're not going to take this seriously, I'm just going to take everything that you've trained me on. You've, t- you know, all the experience and I'm going to go to a competitor. Nobody cares about waiting out a year or two years or staying in a job for 30 years and they're miserable. Nobody cares about that anymore. They're going to just go find another job because there's plenty of people that are just done. They're not wanting to put up with that kind of toxic behavior. I mean, you know, this is one of the reasons why I, I, you know, take the civility angle in the work that I do is because, you know, I look at studies where it's like, you know, we, we as people have put up and tolerated a lot in the workplace. Um, when you think about it, I mean, we, we've had to fight really hard to get basic rights in the workplace, you know, sexual harassment, gender, and we still have so much work to do. Um, but at the end of the day, when you think about it, when, when employees go to work, you know, they want to feel like they're in an environment where they're set up for success, not set up for failure. Right. And so when you allow as an organization, this kind of toxic behavior, whether it's unconscious bias, which leads to microaggressions, right. Or even microaffirmations. So now you're favoring employees over others. And, and that's just a a very important thing to point out because a lot of people think of, bias as being a negative thing. It could be a positive thing too, right? Which can then result in favoritism or preferential treatment. So, but as an organization, when you allow this kind of behavior, when you tolerate it, that's the message you're sending to your employees. And so I think the times are very different. A lot has changed. I mean, this year, you know, it's, it's been crazy already. But I think a lot of these things, when these policies were being drafted or these kind of organizational systems were being put together, they have these issues in mind, right? Which now organizations need to adapt to. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many new things that are popping up every day, um, things that were not considered, and not even just from a diversity inclusion standpoint, right? I mean, we're just dealing with a whole new world of working, a whole, whole new method of working. And one of the things that we can't tolerate, and again, if we're going to go back to the bottom line, and I know you've quoted uh, this before, is that study by Christine Porath around um, how 66% of people aren't able to be as productive or successful in their work when they deal with 
with, with a hostile work environment or uncivility. 80% of people worry about dealing with incivility within the workplace, right? Three out of four people in the workplace won't report harassment. And so when we look at the values of an organization and we look at civility as a key component, the thing that I, when I think of civility, and I would love to uh, have you explain it to the audiences, respect and trust, according to Patrick Lencioni, are permission to play values. These are the bare minimum values just to be in business, right? They're required. They're no-brainer corporate values. And so when you bring civility into this, what's the difference between trust and respect and civility? And why is this uncivility still happening? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is going to take up the rest of our call, that, <laughs> that, that question, seriously. So I will start with, um, and, I, and I love that, that you brought up that research, because I do quote that often. So I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of just talk about really quickly why incivility now is different than it has been in the past. Right, because I think that's important to understand. Because when we talk about incivility, we're not just talking about disrespectful treatment, right? I mean, it, it, the way that I talk about incivility is it's a whole range of behaviors, right? So it includes anything from microaggressions all the way to from you know rude, unprofessional behavior all the way up to abusive conduct, bullying, and then illegal discrimination, harassment. So I look at incivility as a whole spectrum of behaviors. And so the, the reason why it's different now, I mean, there's a lot, there's several reasons, right? One is because now you've got um, diversity like we've never seen before. So, you know, you've got people that are working together from different cultures, from different backgrounds. And we all know that diversity is a good thing, but diversity does bring with it some challenges. And so one of the issues is how do we make sure that employees know how to navigate through those differences? So that sometimes leads to an increase in incivility in the ways that we maybe haven't seen before. Another reason would be globalization, right? So now we've got the internet. I mean, I, I mean, especially now when we've got over half of the workforce working from home, I could be sitting here doing a training from people in Asia, Africa, anywhere, you know? And so this rate, this progress that we've made in globalization, that brings likelihood of increasing incivility more than it ever has before because now we got to know how to communicate with people of different cultures. Another reason is, you know, ages. We've got multi-generational workforces. So you've got five generations, you know, pretty soon it'll be five, if it's not already happening, five generations of people that are working together of different ages. And so now you need to factor that in. I mean, I've been talking to people over the last year or two where people are saying, okay, the leader is, you know, and they stereotype. And I don't like these stereotypes, but you know, this is a millennial and this is whoever and baby boomer and they're having a personality issue. So that's already starting to happen. And that's caused incivility to go up. And so, and then you throw into the fact this right now where we are with COVID, that caused an increased in incivility because we we saw immediately you know people were there was more racism that was going on against asian people and so that created this increase in racism uh, and then you know the black lives matter movement and then you've got the other fact of you know we've never seen such a dynamic shift in remote work before you know and so now you've got employees that are working from home where that can create an increase in incivility of cyberbullying. So there's a lot of different things, not to mention our political climate. 
Okay, so all of these things are the perfect storm for increasing instability to the you know hundredth level, right? Because all of these things are colliding. Not to mention the COVID nineteen, the pandemic. People are under extreme amounts of stress. Lots of people don't have jobs. I mean, there's just so much that's going on. People are homeschooling. So all of this leads to an increase in incivility. And so I think what's important is that when we talk about like Christine Porat's study that you talked about, that was in 2016. Right? So at that point, 90% said we had a civility problem. So that has increased, right? And based on all the reasons that I've just stated. So when I, when I think about what organizations need to do, to address these issues, it's that we need to really focus in on making civility. And this is what I'm out there talking about and is create a, a commitment. Well, there has to be a commitment to civility in the workplace and, and civility, you know, it's different than, you know, respect, right? I mean, to me, when I think of respect is where you're looking at somebody else and you're saying, you know what, we are, we are human beings, so we need to treat each other equally or give each other the respect and dignity we deserve. So we definitely want that in the workplace, right? So that's how I call respect. Trust, on the other hand, is we all know built in the smallest of moments. And so trust is, are the leaders you know, of the organizations, are their actions aligning with the core values of the organization and the policies and meeting the laws? So is it, are their actions aligning with, and then are those expectations clearly communicated to everybody else? And then if there's consistency between that, then over time, you're going to build trust and create this environment where hopefully, if you've created the trust and you've created that environment, which is what I like to call a welcoming environment, then you would hope that employees would feel like they can come to you with concerns rather than go file a lawsuit. So you've created an open and welcoming environment for people where they can now come to their supervisor and not fear retaliation, but feel comfortable saying, hey, there's this incivil, uncivil behavior that's going on, and so I need your help. And then you work together in a collaborative way to solve that problem. That's where, you know, that's how you're going to build a trust. But when I talk about civility in the ways that I talk about it in my trainings is I really like the definition that, um, let me just see if I have it here so I can just kind of read it to you, um, is this definition that, here we go, I got it. I pulled out this because I wanted to make sure I shared this with you, um, is a definition I use by, uh, her name is Dr. Cynthia Clark. And she's a leading expert in civility and healthy work environments. And so, you know, she's got some great work out there. I'm a huge fan as well as with Christine Porath, but I really like this definition. So she defines civility as it's, it's where you create an authentic respect for others, right? So what I talked about being respect is part of that definition, requiring a time presence and a willingness to engage in genuine discourse so you have three elements, basically, respect um, that requires, and then two is requiring time, presence, and a willingness to engage in genuine discourse, and then three, an intention to seek common ground. So you want all three of those as, as part of how your organization defines civility. Now, that's just one definition, right? I'm just sharing that as an example. I think each organization needs to define civility on their own, just like they would with any of their other core values. 
and then really put the resources, the people, the money behind it to really kind of intentionally make that be part of the fabric of your organization, right? And I think that's the level of where it needs to go. And there are organizations, by the way, that are doing that work. And I'm working with some of those, right? And so it's, 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 it's not something that's overnight. As you know, create, you know, creating cultural change is a process. But that's kind of how I, how I would answer that, the, that very loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I know I threw a lot at you. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I love that definition. And the thing that I, I really appreciate about the comments around making it each organization making it their own different values mean different things to different people let alone different companies right your definition of uh, respect might mean something different to me right your definition of um of teamwork might be completely different than mine and civility is the same is in the same vein so uh, good very good call out uh, where we need to be specific on what we mean by civility in the workplace. And part of that civility is, especially you brought up now being everyone's working from home or half the workforce is working from home and being distributed. There is this uh, opportunity, unfortunately, for additional harassment, right? There's cyberbullying. And so moving to cyberbullying, I mean, for me, I often think of cyberbullying as something that happens to teens and not in the workplace. But I did a little bit of research on it, and it showed that uh, 65% of American adults are using social media daily, right? And 68% of employees are connected with their coworkers on social media. So the perception of it just being teens just is not true anymore. So Pew Research, this was an older study done in 2014 showed that 73% of adults witnessed online abuse and 40% of them are victims. And social media use has only increased more than 10 times since that study, six years ago. So who knows Mm -hmm. how, how big it is. So why do companies now need to focus on, and especially now with COVID and the pandemic, why do they need to focus on virtual interactions and their virtual culture now more than ever? Well, you know, again, I think when you look at, you know, there, we've got over half of the total workforce now working from home. I mean, this seems like such a long time ago, but it was only a few months ago when there was a majority of companies that were out there saying, we can't have any of our employees working from home. So employers were not prepared for having remote work. That's why there was this huge issue about how do we get everyone set up at home? How is this going to be possible? I mean, it was, it was very hard on a lot of organizations because they were just zero prepared to deal with that, right? And so the problem then becomes is where you've got now all your employees that are sitting at home, working at home, you don't have the structures in place to have that happen in the first place, but now you've got to monitor them. Now you've got to still make sure work is still happening. You still have to provide a safe and healthy environment for the employees. You know, you've got to get your remote work policies in place. A lot of these places didn't even have remote work policies. And then it's, it's easy when you're trying to put all those fires out or get all that stuff going to then remember that, hey, wait, by the way, workplace culture still exists, even if people are not in the office. So, again, this brings a lot of different challenges that a lot of 
um, organizations weren't ready for, like things like, how do we still have employees produce, right? We can't see what they're doing. This was a huge problem. Team building. How do we still feel like we're a part of the team when we're sitting in our houses? And how do we make employees feel like there's a culture, a sense of belonging, part of, you know, part of an organization. And so this created a lot of um, issues. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you asked about cyberbullying. And, I, and I, I brought it up because I, I really think it's an, an issue that needs more attention than ever. And I don't think it's getting it, honestly. Um, you know, one of the studies I looked at said that before COVID, Right? And this is just like mind-blowing stuff that an average professional, this is before COVID, was spending close to six hours a day on email. That didn't count, you know, that doesn't count surfing the net, monitoring social media or shopping online, just on emails, you know, six hours a day. So it's almost a, a situation now where you're spending twice as much time right? When you, when you add on all the stuff that, you know, you mentioned in your studies, but you've got now my social media, everyone's on all the internet, you know, and, and all the other stuff that you're doing online. And so what ends up happening is when, when all this is going on, not to mention all the incivility and all the stressors I, I talked about earlier, that it, it becomes easy to kind of voice your frustrations or make some kind of insulting comments virtually, right? Because you're hiding behind a computer screen. It's, you know, most of us probably wouldn't, you know, be able to be, be comfortable saying some of the things that we do on a computer than in, in somebody's office, right? And so this is a huge problem, or not a huge problem, but it creates a huge problem for employers because they're not ready for that. So how do we then, you know, none of the, I mean, I, if you look at any of my harassment training, you know, and, or you look at anything, I mean, there's not much in there about cyber, what this looks like. And, and how do we make sure managers, when they witness something like that going on, know what to do to address it when it hasn't been covered? before in any of the trainings. I mean, I've been doing training for a long time and I can remember like, maybe we talk for two minutes about social media in a harassment training class, right? But not like what it really looks like. And so the way that we think about, typically think about workplace bullying is very different than when you look at it happening in a virtual environment. And so there definitely needs to be done, there needs to be additional training on, well, first there needs to be additional uh, making sure you have the policies in place that specifically define what cyberbullying means and then give people examples of what it looks like when it's happening on virtual teams and then give people the complaint procedure on what they need to do if they witness any of that cyberbullying type of behavior going on on whether it's on social media whether it's on a zoom call a slack channel text email whatever any kind of technology that people know what to do. And, and honestly, like, it's just not happening. I work with employers and I'm not seeing that happen. And I'm thinking, is anybody going to address this elephant in the room anytime today? <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> well, what, what baffles me is that, <laughs> you know, everything is recorded digitally, right? In the workplace context, before we went from this, like we were at this in-person, he said, she said, where it's verbal and you literally have, you have to take people's words for it. Right. But now it's literally written down, right. It's in an email, it's in a chat box. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's recorded on video, right. Through zoom or whatever platform you're using. So, I mean, like it's baffling to know that a, it's still happening. So, <laughs> and the other thing is, that I wanted to ask was, I mean, how do companies, what are 
some of the solutions that you're seeing organizations put in place and implement to diminish cyberbullying and harassment? Because well, I think, it, yeah, oh, go sorry. Ahead. No, 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 go sorry, ahead. you finish, you finish. Well, I mean, it's just, it's so easy now for teams or people, especially if in the, they're in their own little cliques, right? To like say, hey, like, let, let's talk about something real quick, like sidebar in this little chat room, or hey, give me a call real quick. I want to talk to talk to you about something. And they don't have to be afraid of if they were to do that in the workplace, someone would, you know, might sneak up on them or overhear them in the workplace, right? Now they can literally pull themselves away. So, I mean, how, what are companies doing to uh, discourage that kind of behavior? Well, again, I, you have to to revise your policies to make them very specific to this issue that we're talking about, cyberbullying. And so, again, it has to be defined just like a sexual harassment policy, right? But you have to have a separate policy with all of the same elements that any other harassment policy is going to have. You have to define it. You have to give concrete examples. So things like, for example, the way you might see cyberbullying happening online is for example, gossip and lying, right? So gossiping about coworkers in a, on a Slack channel or um, withholding critical information so you know somebody needs this thing by a certain time and so instead of giving it to them you're, you're not you're going to withhold it and and so this is like actively sabotaging your co-workers work and it's easier to do that when you're not face to face or you're not having to see each other physically and then you know the other the other one i just dealt with the other day was like exclusion right so you're having a very important meeting so you decide not to invite everybody to the meeting right? Or you don't give them critical information so they can prep for the meeting. So there's, there's just a lot of different ways this can happen. And I don't, I mean, I, this has to be something where, again, I know you're going to keep saying like, CJ, keep coming back to training, but I cannot stress this enough. Like you have to, all employees need to know what it means to cyberbully. They need to know what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, and they need to know what to do when it's happening, including when they see microaggressions happening on the Zoom calls or whatever. I mean, I've seen it where people are interrupting each other, where there's like difference in like impatient tones, you know, that they're using uh, within each other or skipping over somebody when you're asking them a question, you've got a whole team on tape on the call and then you skip over somebody. So people need to know like, this is not okay. You almost need to have like a policy that says zero tolerance, you know, for any of these kinds of behaviors, because anything, and, and, and again, if you define civility as a core value, you, you include in there that anything that's outside of this, right? So however you define um, civility, but to say, this is what we're talking about. These are zero tolerance behaviors like sexual harassment, discrimination, cyberbullying, you know, because bullying is something that happens repeatedly. So the person can't turn around and say, I didn't intend to, because it's happening repeatedly to the same person. It's, it's, it requires kind of this um, element of malice, right? I mean, so it requires an intention to harm another person. And it happens repeatedly. It happens over a period of time. So what it does is it really, I mean, it's so important that organizations pay attention to this because in these bullying cases, whether it's happening cyberbullying or not, it, it wears away at the person's kind of self-worth, their self-confidence, their, you know, it, it messes with their head because it's happening over and over again. And a lot of times it's done in a public setting. So it's like humiliating, you know, um, demeaning kind of behavior. And then it continues for a long time. Well, one of the reasons why it's important to make sure that you pay attention to this is because when you look at cases that involve workplace violence or that involve suicide, for example, a lot of times when you go back and do these investigations, you find that these people were being bullied 
at work and then nobody was doing anything about it. So again, you need to empower your people to know that, hey, when you see this, this is not acceptable. And here's what you do when you see this behavior happening before it's too late, before the person walks in there with a gun and takes a bunch of people out or takes their own life because they just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, the consequences are absolutely huge. And it's something that, again, we've, we've said it before, I'll say it again, this is something that companies just literally cannot risk. I mean, you're not only just looking at dollars, but you're looking at human life at that point. So um, yeah, so important. absolutely. And, and, and the other piece of that too is, is when you get complaints, right? You need to know that when managers need to know, like when you get a complaint, like I hate this example, but I, I, I've, have had to deal with this example is, you know, where they are only doing effective investigations in certain cases and they're not doing them in other cases. I know this because I worked for UCSF Medical Center as a complaint resolution officer and our, the policy defines, you know, and this is for all, organiz- for all employers, it, it defines what are the cases where the person has jurisdiction to do an investigation. And a lot of times that's going to be your EEO policy, right? If you, are, if you can show that you belong to one of those protected categories that are found in either the federal or state law and, and should be outlined in their policy, then they will do an investigation. But what happens when you're bullying somebody and it's not one of those protected categories? What are organizations doing about those situations? Most of the time, it's nothing. Yeah, I I totally hear you on that. I one of the questions I had for you that I have written down is, what do you think are some of the protect you know the future protected classes that uh, will become law, right? Like we recently saw the Crown Act here in California where yeah. it protects uh, hairstyle. So what are some of the things that you would like to see or that you anticipate seeing come into uh, become protected classes in the legal system? You know, I would say probably, you know, first of all, I think this whole protected classes thing, I mean, I know why it was, why it was there, but I think there needs to be like a a catch-all, like bullying, regardless of protected class. You know, if you, if you can establish that a person was intentionally bullying you for whatever reason, I mean, you should be able to bring a, a legal cause of action. That's, that's my opinion. But if, just to answer your question, I would say the case, like the areas where I've had to like, you know, struggle with how I can help a, a person is been height and weight. You're mostly weight. Weight's a big one. You know, um, people getting harassed or bullied at work because of their weight. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of, I mean, unfortunately we've seen it. I've seen it. I've heard it. Um, and it's just not okay. Like we just can't tolerate that as leaders as employees. Mm. So we did, we definitely need to take things into our own hands. I mean, I, I know like when you, we talk about accents, that's kind of covered in under the national origin protected category, but I think honestly, it, it, it needs to be defined more clearly that accent is included. Cause I've have dealt with several cases where people were felt that they were being bullied because they had an accent, you know? So. And you said that that was, you know, the, what was the act? It was foreign for foreign acts or foreign origin. Uh, no, it would, I mean, it would fall, these cases fall under the national origin. Oh, national origin. So, I mean, like, for example, would an accent, like, you could make fun of an accent, you know, we're here in California, let's say, like, New York or Boston or something like that, right? Like, they're, they're yeah. technically still here in the U.S. Yeah. So, would that fall under that law or would that, because we're all in the U.S. and it would. Yeah, pro- no, no. I mean, you, you'd have to establish that it's because of your national origin. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. That could be another category. Like it shouldn't matter if it's because of your national origin. If you're if you're being harassed because you have a Midwest accent or a Southern accent, that's not just it's not justified and shouldn't be allowed by an organization just because it's not under a protected category. So that's another great example of, again, where I think organizations should rather skip that, you know, sort of picking and choosing and, and just doing what the law requires. Just make your policy broader and say, no, we're going to have a zero tolerance for any of that stuff. And and we want you to let us know when you see it going on in the workplace so we can address it and we will address it. Yeah. You know, and that's really how it needs to happen if, if you truly care about the culture of your organization. I mean, the most common example I think about accents is, you know, um, people who have more of an urban accent, right? Who talk quote unquote more ghetto. And so the common thing that they, you know, they're told that I've been told or heard of is that they don't sound professional which is along the same lines essentially as you know what happened with the crown act right is mm -hmm. you don't look professional well yeah. whose definition of professional are you using is there a bias behind it and mm -hmm. is that being held against someone who can do just a good of a job just because they might sound a bit different than what you're expecting mm -hmm. exactly i agree <laughs> well, we're not passionate about these yeah. topics at all, <laughs> no not at all <laughs> Well, Sejal, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Leading People First podcast. This has been a fantastic conversation. I always have great, you know, we always have great conversations when you and I talk. Um, and something, you know, we're going to have to do this again because I have so many questions for you. I'm sure everyone have lot, has lots of questions uh, about what you do. Um, so where can people connect with you? Where can people learn more about what you do and uh, what's the best way to, to reach out? Sure. Um, so you can um, reach out to me through my website. It's um, www.trainextra, and that's T-R-A-I-N-X-T-R-A.com. And then I would suggest that if you're on LinkedIn, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn because I'm a, I truly do, and I, and I say this in all my podcasts, but you know this and you can vouch for me on that, but I really believe in sharing information. And so anytime I get a good resource or a good way to handle a certain situation, I am out there putting it on my page for everybody to get. And I, I truly believe that you know we're dealing with a lot of sensitive kind of issues that are unprecedented. So I'm happy sharing information. So definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. Yep, absolutely. And I, I will give uh, a little bump there. Everything you share on LinkedIn is fantastic. You really engage with people on there. So if you're not connected with Sejal on LinkedIn, go do that right now. Go find her. And uh, I'll link her in the show notes. So you don't even have to do any work. You can just click on that and go hit that connect, connect button. All right, Sejal. Well, thank you again. And we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you again for tuning into this episode of the Leading People First podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Sajel Thacker. I never realized how law could influence the culture of an organization. I also didn't really think about the issue of cyberbullying in the workplace and its effect on productivity. Hopefully you can take this conversation back to your organization or team to help them understand why it's important to go above and beyond the minimum requirements for the law. If you like this episode, make sure you hit subscribe and write a review. Or maybe you know someone who needs to hear this episode and make sure you share it with them. Thanks again for joining me on this journey, exploring how leadership affects the employee experience. Keep leading people first and stay awesome.